Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. And we have our final guest for today in studio with us. We are very lucky to have Natalie Miller, who is going to be talking to us about an incredible memoir called Projecting Natalie Miller. And I mean, I think that as soon as we start chatting, you're going to know exactly who she is. But thank you so much for joining us today, Natalie. Thank you. Pleasure. So, Natalie... I mean, where do we start with you, really? Yeah, so where, where did the interest come from with, with film? Well, it all goes back a long, long way, really. Everything's a long, long way today. But <laughs> um, I was brought up in a household where um, my parents used to have front row seats in the lounge at the Palais Theatre, which seems quite an amazing thing yeah. to do. Every Saturday night they'd go to the pictures with a reserved seat in the lounge. And, of course, I was fortunate as I grew up to be taken. And I also, during that time, had a, an enormous love for all the MGM musicals and the Esther Williams and the Fred Astaire's. Mm, yep. I grew up. A golden age, wasn't it? The golden yes, age. It was of a wonderful cinema. age. Yep. I just don't make films like that today. Oh, no, no, some people that's another not... conversation. Yes. But I had a crush on Peter Lawford. Right. God forbid, my taste in men. But um, <laughs> I was mad about him and kept this big scrapbook, which I've still got today. I used to cut out every Fantastic. magazine. But that sort of answers you. There was that initial sort of superficial commercial interest in film. Yeah. And um, of course. What came later was that I, in my career, I had the opportunity to, after been studying journalism and PR, uh, I didn't actually study journalism, but I was worked for a journalist on a trade paper and then I got a, a position with the ABC, so I worked with Channel 2 and then I was offered a job as PR for the Melbourne Film Festival. I'd actually left the ABC and was freelancing because I'd had a child and I got this chance to work PR for the Melbourne Film Festival which I did for 17 years. Wow. So um, that sort of led, obviously, I was under Erwin Rado who was the most fantastic director of the festival. He was a perfectionist and, you know, European cinema sort of became into my DNA virtually mm. and it was there that I... Um, saw a lot of films that never, ever in those days ever hit the screens here, which is quite extraordinary. One in particular, Louis Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel. I just couldn't believe that you, no one could see it after the festival screening, and that led me to inquire how to start a distribution business, and I bought the film, and it went from there. Right, okay. And how hard was it getting the films in, in that, that era? As you said, a lot of them weren't released um, here in Australia. How hard was it you know, finding the distributor, the international yes, I don't think it was so so difficult because, say, in the case of The Exterminating Angel, Owen Radu had the contact of the 
um, the sales agent in South America because they'd got right. the film for the festival. Yep. And I think it's just that the cinemas weren't here to play them. I think in those days you had the Savoy and the, the Australia, the downstairs at the Australia Hotel. They weren't the outlets and yep. people had not turned their heads to think to buy them. So I went on. There was a few of us at the time, but not many of us started to do this. And um, I went on to buy a number of other Villeneuve-Bunuel films and they weren't hard to get. No. Right, okay. But then once, I, once you got into the, the yes. circle of it all. But, yeah. of course, that led me then to go to the Cannes Film Festival. Uh-huh. And... That, of course, opened my eyes totally to the whole European film market and meeting the people you could buy them from and having the contacts. And yeah. Um, it, it all sort of went from there as well. Yeah. And how exciting were the, was it going to the Cannes Film Festival? Well, in those days it was very exciting, except for one of my colleagues who said, when you go, be careful when you're on the plane from Paris to Nice that they've got the door locked because they've been known to <laughs> <laughs> land. I thought, oh, God, what am I doing? But, no, it was very exciting in those early days because there weren't many of us vying to buy films. And, in fact, there was there was one film when I bought Umana Olmich Tree of Wooden Clogs, which is still one of my favourite films ever. There were three of us in Cannes and one said, well, you go for the one you want and I'll go for this one and the other one said, I'll go for the other one. We didn't compete with each other. It was a totally different world. Yeah. Totally different world than what it is today and I kept going there for about 40 years and mm. I think, you know, I'm probably over it. <laughs> right, yeah. Were there many women in your position doing what you were doing? Or was no, but there wasn't, except funnily enough, there were two that were, one ran the, ran the Adelaide Film Festival, Claudine Thordenay, and there was one other one who just bought a film. She did buy a few films, but not many. But there weren't many men then doing it either. I can name, I know the ones who were my colleagues there at the time. Um Frank Cox from New Vision, Tony Ganane. You count them on half a hand, I think. Yeah. So it was, as I said, a different time. And they used to run films just between 10 o'clock. We'd stop at lunchtime and go to the beach for lunch. I mean, later on, the Cannes Festival became where you were totally running around from 8 in the morning into the cinema <laughs> till, <laughs> till midnight. Going you know. blind watching yes, films. It, it was, but they were good days. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I know that you've done which has had a huge impact on myself uh, as a woman who's worked in film over the years is you were part of establishing some very important art house cinemas in Melbourne is that right? Yes well having bought the films this led to the exhibition because I realised that it was very difficult to um, get your film placed. Mm. I mean, I remember going to Graham Burke at Village Roadshow and I had this Dutch film called Help the Doctor's Drowning and he sort of looked at me but he did give me a screening at the Rivoli, which you would never get today. They just wouldn't give you the space. And we realised that there was very little outlet and I had this opportunity to take the Longford Cinema in South Yarra and it was just a fortunate thing that a very close friend of mine was one of the landlords and when the Australian Film Institute um, who had run it for a number of years decided to give it up I was at the front of the queue to have that opportunity to take over the Longford which I did and ran that for about probably about 16, 17 years too and they were really among the best days of my life because even though it was a single screen, we were able to choose, every time just choose the special film. Um, I remember 
there were 10 films I looked at one Christmas just about to pick the one we would play. And, of course, we had things like, oh, God, I, I always forget now, but Mona Lisa's a good example with Bob Hoskins, which at that time we got exclusive at the Longford. I mean, again, that would be out on 200 screens today. Exactly. Yes. And so, Cinema Nova is something that you obviously have a big hand in as well. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Well, after a number of years at the Longford, Barry Peake, who was the... Um, owner of the Valhalla Cinema in Richmond and then Northcote came to me and said, would I be interested in a, going into a partnership in Carlton? And I said, of course, and I remember going up and having a meeting with him up there and um, we formed a partnership that's been going now for 30 years and we started there with two screens and now have 16 screens there and yeah. all credit to Barry, who's the builder, is with the vision with building, but even when we opened with two screens, I could remember the conversation. Um, we had Mediterranean on one screen, which was a wonderful Italian film that came from Hoyt, and we thought if we can't get enough art house to do the second stream, we'll do repertory like they did at Valhalla. Well, of course, we that never had to happen. <laughs> mm. Now, also Acme, what was your involvement there at Acme? Well, apart from my sort of business exhibition distribution, I served on a number of boards. I was on the board of Film Victoria, which was the first board, actually, of film was called the Victorian Film Commission, became Film Victoria. I was on their first board and then I became uh, later on the first board of, um, yeah, I seem to like first, on the first board of ACME. And it's always wonderful to be in an institution where you're starting. Yeah. You're starting. Yeah. The and what an honour to, to be involved in something. And, and the reputation it has now is yes. uh, phenomenal, isn't it? Well, again, it? that's grown like um, the first director there, and all credit to him, often they say the people who build things shouldn't be the one to run it. He was also pristine and you couldn't, you know, you didn't want a chair put in the foyer. It was... <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was all very um, a bit too high for looting. Yeah, really, yeah, the yeah. So it changed and, look, over the years and a huge credit to recent boards and mm. the last couple of years, yeah. the most recent renovation was amazing. Yeah, and what, what made you want to um, pull this book together? Well, it started really with... People saying to me, you should do a book, and I would say, I will never have the time, which I probably didn't and wouldn't have. But this um, Deborah Marks, a publisher, came to me to ask me to do something for some other book she was doing, and I made that statement to her. I said, everyone says I should do a book, but I won't have time. And she said, I'd love to do it for you. And that started, and she came to my place every week, and it took us a couple of years, and I'm a big hoarder, so I kept a lot of memorabilia. Yeah. Um, and so we time we sorted all that, and she interviewed me, and then um, I said I only wanted a business book, which is really what I wanted. And she said, you've got to tell your personal story because that's part of the story as well. So the book involved to include, you know, my family story, and I'm pleased about that now because I think... I'm interested in the book getting out to a lot of women because I want women to see that you can do it. Mm. I mean, I often quote Betty Friedan who said women can do it but not all at once. Yeah. But I wanted to show, well, you can do it yep. and you can – I've got a yep. family, I had three sons, yep. and um, but I managed to keep working yep. and um, – 
And, and that's an important part of this book, as you said, you know, like that women were out there, for, like yourself, forging a, a spectacular career um, and, uh, and, you know, like, and good on you for doing it and raising a family at the same time. Yes, juggling, jugg- you know, yeah. juggling the whatever, juggling your life. Yeah. So I was not unhappy in the end about the personal being in there, um, but I really, for the book, I really wanted to do a history of independent cinema yep. and how it's changed, how it's, yep. from what we've just talked earlier about today to how it's changed today where it's yep. just so totally different. Yeah. And um, I think it's very sad because I think arthouse films like Fellini and Bergman and Bunuel and all these people... You know, the art house audience is not – there's a sector there for it, but I don't think there's a bigger sector as there was in the old days. Mm, yeah, right, rightly so. All right, so how can we get our hands on a copy of this book? Well, this is where my public relations skills come in. The books are <laughs> – you can get it at readings, uh-huh. and I believe you can buy it online. Um, yep. But readings, bookstores, and The Sun in Yarraville, and it's at Acme. Acme, yep. Um so you can get it at all those places and pet- we should be putting it in more places. Fantastic. Well, I think if mm. you've got it in readings and Acme and, and The Sun, um, uh, it's pretty much covering it. And as you said online, what's it called again? It's called Projecting Natalie Miller. Right. My middle son came up with the title like that. The minute we talked to her having a book, I said, that's it. Projecting, yeah, yeah, the old projector. <laughs> um, well, it's been a pleasure meeting you today. So thank you so much for coming in, and so pleased that you've put this book together because I think it's uh, an excellent thing to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We've been chatting with Natalie Miller, the uh, now official queen of Australian film, (laughs) about her new memoir coming up called Projecting Natalie Miller. And as you heard, it's available in a lot of places where films are very much appreciated. You're listening to the Sunday Arts Magazine on Joy 94.9, and we'll be right back. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.